1983 with the death of Linda Mann and then the subsequent death of Don Ashworth three years later in 86 would change how police investigations would be conducted from then on in life with the conception of the first DNA conviction ever in history. Leicestershire, England, 15-year-old Linda Mann, she attended the Lutterworth Grammar School uh, and Community College, which that's weird that they'd have both in one, but you know, it's a different place. Europe. Yeah. Uh, she, uh, by all accounts, she was your typical teen. She was quiet, but popular. Uh, she would babysit to earn money. So that way she could uh, make her own clothes with the money she earned. Okay. So she was handy. A little fashionista. Yeah. November 21st, 1983, she said she was going to go to a friend's house. She told her parents, her mom and her stepfather, that she would be home by 10 p.m. By midnight, her parents became worried and they decided to call the police. They searched all night looking for her. Okay. The next morning, she was found by a hospital porter who discovered her body uh, on his way to work at 7.20 a.m. Okay. okay. Uh, he said that initially he thought that the body was a mannequin. Uh, she had been raped, strangled. Her jeans removed, clothes scattered all around. She had a scarf around her neck that was used to strangle her. Um, this is a small, peaceful town, had zero crime. So, you know, they put out an alert. They're like, hey, don't walk alone. Everybody walk by each other. Um, they, they searched the entire area trying to look for clues. Couldn't find anything. Uh, she was found, her body was found on a walk path um, that was near like a... Uh, a psychiatric hospital. Okay. So they thought that maybe the suspect would be somebody there. Um, cause it was literally only like a few hundred feet away from the scene where this psychiatric hospital was. Uh, but they found nothing that could link the two. Okay. During the autopsy, they did collect male DNA. Uh, the DNA showed that the person who raped and killed her had uh, type a blood. And I guess at that time it eliminated like, 90% of fucking England at that point. Right. Uh, I guess it was a rare blood type. Uh, investigators then went from house to house because it's a small enough town uh, talking to everybody, trying to see if, if uh, anybody saw or heard anything. Uh, they also went to every person's house who was accused of some sort of sexual crime or um, convicted of some sort of sexual crime. And they took statements from them trying to, you know, determine alibis. Things of that nature. There was one call that came in um, saying that uh, someone saw this person with spiky hair around 8 p.m. that night, uh, like two minutes away from where her body ended up being found. Uh, but there was no way of determining who that was. You know, obviously, they don't have cameras and stuff like yeah. that at this time to, to figure any of that out. Right. Right. So this case went cold. They had nothing to go off of, right? They found nothing at the scene. All they had was the blood type, and that was it. Three years passed, okay, of this being a cold case. And in 1986, another 15-year-old girl 
by the name of Don Ashworth, who lived in a nearby town of Enderby, Leicestershire. She also attended the same school that Linda did. Okay. Was 15 as well. She was uh, apparently a great drawer. So she had a, uh, a job working at like a news article doing the, the pictures for the newspaper. Right. On July 31st, 1986 at 4 PM, she gets off work and then she goes to a friend's house that lived in Narborough. Okay. Where Linda passed. She was told by her parents to be home by 7 PM. She was last seen uh, by passing motorists around 4:40 PM that day. Okay. 7:30 PM. Don still wasn't home. So concerned, her parents decided to start driving all through Narborough looking for her. So they looked for like a solid two hours almost before they finally called the police. So at 9.40 p.m. that night, they call police trying to find her body. Uh, they searched for several days, and it literally took uh, like two or three days before they finally found her body. Also strangled, also raped, also on a walk path. Autopsy showed that the killer had the same blood type. So at least they know that they're possibly looking for the same man at this point, right? Right. Uh, other similarities. Uh, they both were murdered and raped on a footpath. Okay. Both teens, both were 15. Uh, both walking alone, obviously. Uh, both attended the same school and both murders occurred near this hospital, this psychiatric ward. The uh, psychiatric ward, I think I have the name here as well. I'm, uh, it'll come up here and it'll come up here in a second, but I do have the name. Probably some funny name. Uh, yeah, no, it's not. It wasn't that funny, but yeah, both, both incidences, uh, happened similar manner and in the same area. Right. Right. So around the, the murder scene of Don, they decided to set up this like mobile incident room. So that way they could take info from, uh, from whatever residents live in the area, things like that. Uh, they had about a dozen visits to this room. They fielded about 200 calls in regards to uh, Don's murder. Uh, they didn't have any real promising leads initially to come out of it. I mean, there, there was one time where they had someone who was parked under the bridge close to where she died uh, the same day around 5 p.m. Uh, the day that she went missing, at least. Right. Uh, wearing like a red motorcycle helmet. And like there was a detective that said they saw that person taking interest in the investigation, but nothing, not enough of anything to be able to like pin it on him. Right. Uh, August 1st. So the day after Dawn was reported missing, but the day before her body was found, a police officer and a detective saw that same person. So it was in the, in the area, but just, there wasn't enough to like say, okay, well let's fucking talk to him. Right. Now, a constable that was on scene on a security detail for the murder scene uh, was approached by a 17-year-old kitchen porter that worked at the, this is the name of the hospital, too, the Carlton Hayes Hospital, which was the psychiatric hospital. Um, and he claimed to have seen Dawn walking the day that she disappeared. Um, so they set up a time to interview this kid later on in the day, right? But before they got to go and meet up with him, uh, they got info at their incident center from uh, one of the kitchen porter's friends who also worked at the hospital, who, who they didn't talk to him before because he was on vacation the day the Don went missing. Mm -hmm. um, but he's happened to go in to go and collect his paycheck. 
And so the information that they passed on was that the kitchen porter visited him at like 10 p.m. the night before and excitedly told him that Don's body was found in a hedge near a gate by the M1 bridge. The friend's father overheard this. And so he was like, well, where did you get this information from? Because none of this was posted on the news. Right. The kitchen porter mysteriously stated someone told him she was hanging from a tree. So there was some truth to what he was telling his friend. And then there was other things that were BS. Like for one, she wasn't hanging from a tree. Her body was being concealed by like tree limbs. Like if someone broke them off and covered her body with. Right. Um, she was by a gate on before a walk path. And it was about like a 10 minute walk from that M1 bridge. So there was enough there that when he passed this information on to investigators at that, that, uh, it was suspicious. that station. Yeah. They were like, okay, well made him POS. Yeah. And, and then this is what really threw them off and what made them say, oh yeah, let's go get this motherfucker right now. When he told this, when the kitchen porter told this information to his friend, it was 12 hours before Don's body was even discovered. Yeah. So they were like, yeah. oh, yeah, no, no, no. We got to go get him. Definitely. So they arrested the kitchen porter, and his name was Richard Buckland. So Richard Buckland was tra- transported to the station to be interrogated. He had an inconsistent story at first, right? He, like, at first he admitted to doing it or admitted to seeing Don the day that she disappeared. And that he even talked to her and then at one point admitted to everything, quickly recanted his statement saying, no, I I didn't do it. By the third interview, Buckland gave so many details to the incident that they they were like, "Okay, yeah. And it was stuff that wasn't publicized that they were like, yeah, this is our guy. Right now. This was his saving grace. Investigators, they were like, you know what? Let's just put the fucking final nail in the coffin. And let's send all this stuff out to get some DNA work up done on it, right? Right. So, and they were going to try and see if maybe this was the same person that killed Linda Mann. So, they send all of this stuff out to a uh, geneticist, a DNA geneticist by the name of Alec Jeffries. Now, Alec Jeffries had only used this technology twice before. Once was for a uh, immigration case. And then the second time was for a paternity test. So this was the first time that it was going to be used to try and convict someone of murder and rape, right? But test showed that Buckland was not a match and therefore innocent. And his blood type was different? There was other DNA, I'm sure, that was different also, right? Wow. Um, but it did show that at least it was the same person that killed both of them. Right. So they were on the same track. They were on the right track thinking, okay, let's see if we could close both cases out, right? So Buckland was released and he was actually the first person ever exonerated by uh, DNA profiling. So now enter Derek Pierce, who takes over the cases. Because at this point, they're cold. They have like nothing, right? Derek Pierce comes in. He reads over like 1,800 messages from people. Uh, One message was from the Linda Mann case about a guy that didn't have an alibi. And he had priors for flashing females. But that no one followed up on it because they found out that this guy didn't move to Narborough about a month after uh, Linda was killed. Okay, so they didn't find enough reason to actually go and follow up on it. But the message read, you ought to have a look at a man in Little Thorpe named Colin Pitchfork. Now, uh, Little Thorpe is about like three hours away from Narborough. 
But after seeing what DNA testing could do, they decided, you know what? Let's ask all the men from the age of 17 to 34 to voluntarily submit blood and saliva samples. All right. Like they weren't dumb. They knew that this wasn't going to flush the guy out. It wasn't going to make the killer come out and be like, oh, fine, here's my samples. You got me. Yeah, but a process of elimination. Right. They thought that it would help kind of flush him out a little bit. Especially though. if it was a small town, like you say. Yep. And that announcement was made on January 2nd of 1987. So they, uh, again, they didn't expect it to actually get the guy, but to help flush him out. Right. By the end of January, they had about a thousand samples submitted with only about a quarter of them being able to be cleared because the, the lab's just so backlogged. Mm-hmm. In fact, the, by May, there was 3,653 men that had taken tests, and they were only able to eliminate 2,000 of them at that time. Wow. Like, that's how far behind they were, because it's just too much work, I guess, to do. September 19th, 1987, a woman called the police saying that, they, that she overheard a conversation from a group of friends sitting by her where a man by the name of Ian Kelly claimed to have taken the blood test for Colin. All right. When police looked back to see if there was any like relevancy to what she was stating, they noticed that the initial investigation, when they went to like interview people at their homes from the Linda Mann uh, murder, the signature from the signed statements, Collins didn't match from the testing at the site. Ah. for the DNA samples. Cause you know, you got to sign off saying, yes, right. this is my sample. Right. And they found, Oh shit, this, this doesn't match. Hmm. So that same day, Alec Pierce goes to Ian's house to interview him and figure out like what he was talking about. Uh, when he did that, he found out that they both worked together. They both worked at a bakery. Okay. And then, uh, Ian eventually, even though he was hesitant at first, um, admitted to taking the test to Alec Pierce uh, for Colin Pitchfork, right? Um, when they saw uh, Colin's history, they saw that he had a history for flashing women's and uh, also being a womanizer. Yeah, he was a thick bastard. So after Ian admitted to taking the test, for Colin, they go to Colin's house and they take him into custody, right? Now, they were, they were first thing that they looked at was the IDs because you had to show an ID to be able to do the testing as well. Right. Ian actually went as far as, or I'm sorry, Colin actually went as far as taking a picture of Ian and sliding it in front of his picture on his uh, passport so that way they wouldn't think nothing of it when he'd go to sign and stuff like that. Wow. So... Colin admitted eventually to Linda's death, first saying that he just wanted to flash her. But then when it it turned into something more, when he realized that she may recognize him one day. Well, he probably knew, oh, I'm moving to this same town she lives in. I can't move here and then her see me later. So she so he took it a step further and decided to, to kill her. And then he said, and when I was done, I left her there. And simply walked back to my car where his kid was still in the car. He had a baby in the car and then drove home. Then he admitted to doing the same thing to Don and claimed that he knew what he was doing was wrong, but that he couldn't stop himself. And that he tried also several times to kill Ian so that he could never tell about doing the DNA testing for him. But all of his plans failed. 
Ian ended up getting 18 months suspended prison sentence for aiding Colin. Uh, Colin received a controversial double life sentence. And the reason that it became controversial was because the judge that was ruling on it, she didn't give a uh, minimum recommendation for his time to be behind bars, which meant that like without the recommendation, he could have been released anywhere in like 10 to 12 years, Mm. which is sick to even think about. Right. Right. Uh, he did end up getting released in 2021 after serving 33 years of his prison sentence. So he was 63 years old at this time. Uh, he was released to a bail hostel or like what we call here in the U.S. Uh, halfway house. And I think even now uh, in England, they have a different name for it as well. I don't even think they call it the same thing anymore. Two months later, this dude gets recalled and put back in jail because of. um approaching women inappropriately apparently Uh, on the streets now if you ask me i would say that two months outside of a jail cell is two seconds too long for a sick son of a bitch like this this man deserved to stay behind a fucking prison cell and get his asshole pounded open every day until it sounds like a whistle when he fucking farts like i just (laughs) there's no reason for him to be outside of a fucking cage sorry he's sick bro yeah he he clearly got a, a serious issue you know yeah what you got, man? You got anything on this? You got some opinions? I mean, it's just sad that some people do this sick shit, you know, but thank God for um, the guy who created the DNA profiling. Yeah. Because without that, those two girls, would cases would have never been solved, you know? Yeah, they'd still be cold cases today unless yes. he messed up and did something to someone else and which, thank God he was caught prior probably, to all that. Yeah, which probably he would have kept doing it oh yeah if he already got away from it twice there's no doubt he would have kept doing yeah. it yeah um but yeah. i i found this interesting because this was a story of a cold case that was eventually solved using this dna tactics and then it was not only the first time that it was used to convict someone but also the first time it was used to exonerate someone yeah and it's a big deal because you know like i stated earlier in the intro that's kind of one of the number one things Aside from criminals making mistakes, because, I mean, you, we know law enforcement, they're just waiting for you to make a mistake. But usually yeah. DNA is the number one thing that gets people caught and convicted because you can't deny it. Yeah. They've, they've mastered it now, you know. So that's that's the story for today. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, and as always, subscribe, share and show that you care. Bitches.